millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, November 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the seven-day rolling average of coronavirus cases hit a three-month high, hospitals prepare for a second wave. Then the Supreme Court heard arguments on the Affordable Care Act this week. We examine the legal case for the health insurance program. Plus, in today's book club, you just heard him on NPR, Wright Thompson and his new book, Pappyland. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Radio. Coronavirus cases are on the rise in what could be Mississippi's second wave. Yesterday, the seven-day rolling average reached a three-month high, and the state is on track to reach what health officials are calling crisis-level hospitalizations as the state continues to fill bed space with coronavirus patients. Dr. Alan Jones is with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells our Kobe Vance if coronavirus cases continue to rise at the current rate, patients may not receive the immediate care they need. You know, our health care resources are not uh, infinite, and um, they they will be exhausted, and, you know, there are going to be situations where people won't be able to get the care they need, uh, regardless of what we do if the virus keeps spreading. So, um, so I really think, uh, you know, we've got to think about that uh, in the context of what it means, and you know, we've been through it already once, and, it, and there's a lot of places in the country right now that are going through it, uh, going through it presently um, as we begin this uptick again. So um, it, it is, it's exhausting to think about from the healthcare perspective, but it is something that we we just have to um, recognize that we can control it to some degree as a population. Um, the Department of Health has a tracker on their website that um, shows active uh, ICU bed capacity at hospitals across the state. And I've seen a few times where UMMC is actually in the negatives. Could you talk a little bit about what that actually means? Is that people that are just uh, filling up the ICU so much that it's going into ER capacity as well? Right. So when you see negative numbers, that means that we uh, we actually physically have every ICU bed full. And then we have ICU patients or patients who need an ICU bed that are being cared for in non-traditional areas uh, that we call overflow areas. So uh, our post-anesthesia care unit, which can care for critically ill patients, our emergency department, which can care for critically ill patients. So in other words, we have a backlog of patients waiting for beds to get into those ICU beds. Um, but ICU beds, you know, traditionally are are very uh, 
tight anyway in terms of how often they open up. And COVID just makes just exacerbates that problem a little bit more. Now, Governor Reese has recently extended his executive orders. Um, instead of you know applying more counties to this uh, to his mass mandates, he has just re- like shuffled some around and added a couple, taken a few off. But as we see the state moving higher and higher in coronavirus cases, um, do you think that's uh, that the state should reconsider a, a a statewide mass mandate, or should the governor continue to focus on uh, small communities like he's doing? Well, I think you know. Honestly, people don't need um, the governor or the mayor or, you know, any other public elected official or appointed official or anyone to tell them what to do um, in terms of doing the right thing. They know the right thing. I mean, after eight months, we've heard it over and over again. Wear a mask all the time, socially distance, wash your hands, don't go to parties, avoid restaurants, you know, avoid gyms, avoid the things that we know are spreading the virus. So you really don't need anybody to tell you to do that. We really just need people to do it as a matter of routine, even as exhausting as it is. But, you know, we would be supportive of anything that, you know, gets us to the place of more widespread implementation of those measures. If that is a statewide mask mandate or if that is, you know, more counties being put under a mask mandate, we are certainly supportive of that and need to get to that point um, to decrease the spread of the virus. Now, we're at a stage where some people are calling this the second beginning, of the second wave of the virus here in Mississippi, you know, nationwide. Um, uh, nationwide, they're saying this could be the third the third wave nationwide, um, just because Mississippi had a, didn't have that big drop off early, early on like some other states did. What could separate this fall's wave from the, what we had in the summer? Um, well, I think it could be different for you know a couple of reasons. Number one, it's possible that the um, virulence of the of the virus, the you know the infectivity and or the severity of the virus is is changed so it could be less or it could be more it could be spreading among a different demographic so it could be spreading in um, younger age populations or populations that are not at most risk but you know of most concern is it could be layered on top of what you know what we're coming into with flu season um, could be a difficult flu season depending on the strains and the um, degree of activity we see with the flu so that could make things much more difficult um so you know there's a lot of unknowns leading into this uh exactly what it will look like but uh, i think we we need as a state and as a society to view uh our last what we got through with our last peak and try to learn from that and try to you know blunt this one as much as possible so that we don't um get into some of the situations that we've seen around the country and around the world with, you know, um, more austere care being provided in areas that we wouldn't normally want to see that happen. And last thing before I let you go, I wanted to ask, how are how are doctors and nurses doing? How are y'all feeling during this time? And how are y'all preparing for what could be another wave of the virus? Yeah, well, honestly, we're tired. I mean, um, you know, we have worked tirelessly day in and day out, and that's not complaining, but uh, it's tedious work. Um, it's it's 
physically exhausting. It's mentally and emotionally exhausting. Um, and, and it's layered on top of all of the other difficulties that non-healthcare workers are facing with the economy and with kind of a um, instability in society right now. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot piled on to the shoulders of healthcare workers. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to weather the storm through the entirety of it. Um, but I certainly don't take that for granted, and I worry about, you know, my colleagues and our team members and um, everybody that's having to deal with this uh, day in and day out um, as they come to work. We need everybody to recognize that we are the last line of defense that people have, and we need the front line of defense, you know, uh, every citizen to do their part to, to try to prevent as many people getting to the last line of defense. Dr. Alan Jones of UMMC with our Kobe Vance. Coming up, the Supreme Court heard arguments on the Affordable Care Act this week. We examine the legal case for the health insurance program. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpvonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. As the U.S. Supreme Court deliberates the future of the Affordable Care Act, some Mississippians are hopeful the program will survive. Mississippi is one of 18 states attempting to strike down the Affordable Care Act. Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments. According to the state insurance department, 99,000 Mississippians enrolled in the health insurance program this year. Beth Orlansky is with the Mississippi Center for Justice. She examines the legal case for the ACA with our Desiree Frazier. The uh, court has upheld the Affordable Care Act before and feels like it is up to Congress to make the laws and that while the entire act may not bear scrutiny, that uh, the, the core principles will remain in effect. What do you think uh, led to that that approach? Because there was so much hope for those who wanted to see it come to an end that getting it to the U.S. Supreme Court was going to be the answer. Well, I think this court, even though it's um, primarily conservative and appointed by Republican presidents, still recognizes that there are three different branches of government and that Congress's place is to make the law and that just because people may not like the Affordable Care Act, that doesn't make it unconstitutional. Um, and there is a longstanding tradition uh, in Supreme Court precedent that says that you don't strike down the whole law if it can stand on its feet with a piece taken out. So even if they find that the individual mandate is not um, 
acceptable, the rest of the law can still stand and then Congress can do what they want to with it. Con- Congress is the one that made that reduced the tax liability to zero. So they could have gotten rid of the individual mandate at the same time. They did not. And um, so the Supreme Court is leaving it to Congress to, to do its job. Why do you think Congress didn't eliminate the program? Well, they tried. <laughs> And uh, Senator McCain was the only Republican vote to keep it from happening. So um, it uh, it's it the reason that it has main has stayed is because most Americans really like it. Um, it has been tremendously beneficial to the American people. Uh, people who never had insurance have gotten insurance. People who had pre-existing conditions are able to be insured. The lifetime cap is gone. People are able to be on their parents' insurance till they're 26. So this is not just for poor people. It really affects um, all Americans and their ability to be covered by health insurance. Your thoughts on Justice Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, he saved it in 2012. He did. Um, I think Justice Roberts has a very strong sense of the court's place and the integrity of the court and um, respect for the three branches of government. Uh, I think he is, uh, and at this point, he is is respectful of precedent and and wants to make sure things are done appropriately. Conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was appointed by uh, President Trump, was expected to be more amenable to issues that conservatives have, which one of them is uh, ending the ACA by and large. And he seemed reluctant in his comments. He did. Um, you know, you, you never know until the judge gets there what they're going to do. Um, and I, I think that Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, also has respect for the proper place of the court and uh, is going to look at each issue as it comes along. I don't think we can predict absolutely what anyone is going to do until the case is actually there. From your perspective, if it went away, what would it mean? Oh, it would be catastrophic for sure. Um, we, we, before the ACA was passed, we had many, many people who um, had no access to care or to, you know, if you don't have insurance, then you're not going to get any kind of preventive care. One of the things of the ACA is that it pays for um, people to go to the doctor before they're sick to get annual checkups to do screenings which saves money in the long run and what happens is when people are not insured they wait till they're very sick and they go to the emergency room and it costs us all much much more because we they can't pay for it um and they go into debt and lose their homes and you know medical debt is a huge huge issue um and you know right now with covid we have no idea what the long-term effects are going to be for these millions of people who will come down with the disease before it's over. And that will be a pre-existing condition. If someone has heart problems or lung problems and the ACA goes away, then insurance companies could decide they're not going to cover any expenses incurred by someone because of what happened um, under this disease. So it's, it's, it's just the right thing to do to make sure people are covered uh, it actually saves us money in the long run to, to take care of people when they're not so sick that they can't do anything. And um, it really was, you know, people were 
opposed to the ACA on political grounds when it passed. But 10 years later, people have really appreciated having it. So it's become this political uh, siren and the politicians say how terrible it is, but it really has saved a whole lot of lives and made, made life more livable for many, many, many people. Well, Beth Orlansky with the Mississippi Center for Justice, thank you so much for your time and talking about this important issue. Sure. Thanks very much. Lolly Green of Get Covered Mississippi helps enroll residents in the program statewide. She thinks based on this week's arguments, the court will allow the program to continue. I think the issue, the bulk of the issue has been um, the penalty. Um, and that was zeroed out in 2017. So now that there is no penalty, uh, it does not appear that it's that there's anything to really argue. Well, that was the linchpin of the argument that came before the court, though, that because mm-hmm. that mandate was zeroed out, the program mm-hmm. should end because it's unconstitutional. And it's and it's not. I think I think Justice Roberts spoke about that, that that particular um, that the fact that that mandate has been struck down. Uh, does not require that the rest of the law be struck down as well. How do you feel about how it's looking? Right now, I'm very optimistic. I'm very thankful. I'm happy that um, cool heads are prevailing. I'm happy that uh, the court um, is being um, being like they are, from what I can see, that, that it appears that they're going to leave the rest of the act in place that they're not seeing this in a, in a partisan way. They're seeing it as a, as a, as a public health people issue. Now people need access to health care. Um, and I think the whole thing was that um, those who supported striking down the law perhaps thought that if the mandate was gone, that people would not enroll. And we see every day that that's not the case. People are still enrolling. People still need this as an option for health care. What are people saying to you when they want to sign up that makes you an advocate for this program? Um, We've had people um, say a number of things. One thing that we hear year after year from a diverse group of people is that they've never had insurance that they could afford before. And now they do. That's something that we hear every single year that we do that. And that warms our heart uh, because uh, we are faith-based at our root, and we want to see people get what they need. We think health care is just a civil right. It's a human right that, that people should have. So it warms our hearts when, 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 when we hear people say that. Well, Lottie Minor, we really appreciate your time in speaking with us about the Affordable Care Act. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. It was my pleasure. Coming up in today's book club, Kentucky Bourbon, Southern Culture, and Family, in Wright Thompson's new book, Pappyland. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jermaine Flood. Join me along with Tara Wren for Chalkboard Chat, a MPB education podcast dedicated to providing up-to-date resources for teachers, parents, guardians, students, and education enthusiasts. Each episode will feature knowledgeable experts and interesting guests. Chalkboard Chat premieres Friday, November 13th. For more information, visit education.mpbonline.org. Class is now in session. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today 
at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. There's a Kentucky bourbon that sells for thousands of dollars per bottle. It has a cult-like following, and it and the family behind it are the subjects of a new book from Mississippian Wright Thompson. Thompson is widely read as senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the magazine. He explains why he set aside sports to pen the book Pappyland, a story of family, fine bourbon, and the things that last. You know, my sports stories sometimes feel like they're barely about sports, and this book feels at times like it's barely about bourbon. And I feel like there's a lot of overlap in the themes that that draw me to stories are the themes that drew me to this book about inheritance and family and home. I mean, I grew up in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and uh, that is a that's a that place is a big part of this story. As I uh, because it's, it's a story about me and a story about Julian Van Winkle, who makes Happy Van Winkle, and about the four years I spent driving back and forth between Mississippi and Kentucky. So it, it feels very much of a piece with all of that work. Happy Van Winkle's bourbon is something I haven't heard of. Am I in the minority? It's interesting. I mean, it's sort of like it's famous if you know what it is. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, is, it is highly, highly sought after. It is a little culty. It is very, very hard to get. Uh, I mean, in a couple of days, we're raffling off three bottles at uh, Square Books in Oxford. The staff, Richard and Lisa, they're stunned up there at Square Books because so many people are into this bourbon that right now I think I'm outselling John Grisham in Oxford, (laughs) Mississippi (laughs) because people are buying these raffle tickets. People are really obsessed with it. By the way, if you want a raffle ticket, you better get it right now because they're going. If it's so hard to get, what does a bottle sell for? Three, four, five thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! No, it's crazy. There are also Julian Van Winkle, who makes it, will tell you nothing is worth that. Maybe like the last bottle of Comeback Sauce at the Mayflower might be worth it. (laughs) Nothing else in the world that can be poured from a bottle is worth three thousand dollars. But also, aren't there three different kinds of bourbon under his label? Well, there's several. Uh, He has different ages, and so like at this raffle at Square Books, we're giving away a ten-year-old a 15-year-old, and a 20-year-old. They have different proofs. They have different alcohol content. It's sort of what you like. I mean, some people think swear by the 20-year-old. Some people think the 23-year-old is great, and other people think it's too aged. It's just a personal taste thing. You described it as cult-like. Why? Is it the taste? Is it the fact that it's hard to get? Is it the story around it? Not to be a cop-out, but yes. I mean, I think it's all of those things. I think it is certainly one of, if not the best, technically best bourbons in the world. It is also unbelievably hard to get. Having it and sharing it with someone is a way of communicating really complicated ideas about home and family. And then the story of it is fascinating because Julian Van Winkle, who makes it, is from a family. His grandfather started what was the best distillery in America, and then his father lost it. And so Julian has spent his whole life trying to rebuild this family thing that was lost. And I really identified with that, and that's where the story started, because like, I, I, I love Bruce Springsteen. And so I went to see Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show, and he talked about the difference between being an ancestor to your children and a ghost, with the idea that an ancestor propels their children to something better, and a ghost wraps their own stuff so tightly around their ankles it drags them down. And so the most interesting conversations that Julie and I had 
talking about my family and about his distillery were those like trying to figure out what you owe your family and what you owe your children and you know what is required of someone and you know of a of a son and of a, a father how old is julian god he is ageless julian is 73 i think and how far back in his family does this bourbon go his grandfather opened the Sissel Weller Distillery in Louisville, Kentucky, on Kentucky Derby Day, 1935. They broke ground the day after Prohibition ended. Good timing. Like, the, yeah. Well, believe me, they were, you know, <laughs> they were ready to go. Like, uh, the, the Van Winkle kids needed new shoes. They just time to sell some booze. So the book isn't about, or is partly about Pappy Van Winkle, but it's about you as well. And the South? Tell us about the character that the South plays in this book. It is a consideration of Julian's relationship with Kentucky and my relationship with Mississippi, a lot about growing up in the Delta. I hope that, I mean, it's interesting because I have been talking over the last several days, you know, nationally about this book and the universal themes that I hope apply to all people's homes. Everybody in Mississippi is either going to get this book for Christmas or give it. I think people will identify with a lot of it and will certainly see themselves and the questions they ask about their home and their family in this story. It's called Pappyland, a story of family, fine bourbon, and the things that last. Wright Thompson, thank you so much for being with us. No, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.